Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Straight ahead on the insiders, there's some tension, anxiety, and angst in Iowa's agricultural community. We've had bad weather, we have that ongoing trade war, plus some other commodity pressures, and it's stressing farmers and so many other families right now. Iowa's agriculture secretary is here to share what he learned in Japan, plus how he assesses what is happening now across our state. Plus, it might seem a little bit late here, but Deval Patrick is now officially in this Democratic race for president. Hear how he talks about one of his most prominent competitors, Joe Biden, who just landed two highly sought after endorsements this weekend. And in the Insider's Quick Six, time to talk a little turkey and time to make a choice. How does our guest prefer his turkey for Thanksgiving? Welcome to the Insiders. Now, Japan cannot make up for what Iowa producers have lost because of the flooding, the early cold weather, President Trump's ongoing trade dispute with China, but it could offer some new possibilities. So joining us first this week is Iowa's Agriculture Secretary, Mike Nag. Hopefully the jet lag has passed. <laughs> Good to be with you. And let's talk in Japanese. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so what'd you learn about your trip there and what can we expect back home? Well, this was actually a bright spot for us in terms of that trade picture. And you know, Japan's been an incredibly important market for Iowa for many years now. So when you look at our trading partners, uh, the way they stack up, Canada, Mexico, and Japan, one, two, and three for Iowa. Uh, and so going to a place where we've had good business uh, relationships for years, uh, but it's a place where we've got some optimism because of the tariff reduction agreement that was signed by the United States and Japan earlier this fall. So uh, a lot of optimism uh, in terms of pork and beef and corn and even some ethanol opportunities in, in Japan. So it's a good trip, short trip, but we, uh, we've got some great relationships there. And relationships for the future, or did you come home with some kind of increased deal? Well, I tell you, you know, Governor Reynolds led this mission and I was co-lead with that. And I know she had lots of meetings, uh, kind of looking at that forward looking piece. You know, we uh, took uh, producers, pork producers, uh, beef producers, and we really met a lot with existing customers, but customers that we know want to do expanded business with us. So uh, I think a little bit of both is what we hope we have secured as we come home from that expansion, but new. Uh, you talked about ethanol more broadly with biofuels. So we're just seeing this halt in production up in yeah. Emmitsburg yes. with this cellulosic plant there. Is this a direct impact of this fight over the renewable fuel standards and these increased waivers uh, for these refineries in Texas? Or does that industry just not have a financial path forward? Well, first of all, that Emmitsburg plant hits very close to home yeah, for me, literally. Home for it's back home for us, and that's where I have a, grow up and we farm in that area. You know, unfortunately, this is playing out exactly like we said it would, and the industry said it would, which is if we do not have certainty and predictability in terms of the policy around renewable fuels, that we will see plants that will have to shut down or dial back their production. And that is what has happened. We've got, we've had four plants, now the Emmitsburg plant that has, has had to shut down. A, a comment I made when I, when I gave comments to EPA on this is, this is more than words and numbers on spreadsheets. These are families, these are people's jobs that have been impacted by this. It's playing out like we said it would by causing stress on, the, uh, on this, this industry. And how long before these things are gone for good? 
Well, the 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 plants, or uh, you know, let's say, the, let's say the currently idled plants. I'm still I, I'm still hopeful. You know, we uh, the good news about what's happening with EPA right now is this, the fix that we're asking for in terms of the rulemaking, uh, actually using a an a, a, an average of the actual waivers granted, is not that difficult to fix. And so EPA can still do the right thing. There's still time to comment before the end of November. If we can bring certainty back into this marketplace, if we can bring predictability back, uh, these plants can operate again. Uh, but, but, but where's the hope with this? So the, the president is saying that he's trying to work with both sides here, right? So he doesn't want to punish the oil industry, particularly in Texas there, doesn't want to punish what we have going on in the Midwest here. But is there really a way to thread the needle here or isn't someone's gain someone else's loss? I, I think there can be balance here. Look, the, the deal that the governor, uh, Senator Grassley, Senator Ernst negotiated in good faith with the White House had that balance, which is something the president wanted, which was to still be able to grant those small refinery exemptions. Uh, we don't like those, but we also don't dispute that they, that they can't be granted, right? Legally, they can be granted. All we've asked for is you have to account then for the gallons that were lost, the, the gallons that were waived on the other side. It is how they're proposing to account for those gallons, or are they willing to accommodate for all of the gallons that they've waived? That's the sticking point. But that's, that balance, I think, can be achieved. You can still grant those waivers. We still don't know why you need to necessarily, but you can. You just need to make sure that you're accommodating for those gallons. For those, I've, I've talked to some who have been either directly or indirectly involved with talks on this, and they said the, the balancing act here is that you have to stick up for the interest here if you're an elected official in Iowa, but you can't be too critical of the president here because that's a surefire way to turn him off. Well, you know, uh, we, we still think that, that you, could, you have to have relationships at the end of the day. And, and with the White House, this, hey, this is part of, uh, by the way, being first in the nation and having candidates come and, and meet with voters. You know, the president, when he ran for president, made some commitments to farmers and the renewable fuels industry about his support for ethanol. We've been able to, uh, you know, to use that and to remind folks of that. The White House knows uh, that he said those things. And, and so as we work through this process, when the president gets involved in renewable fuels policy, it usually goes uh, in a positive way for us. Think back to E15. The president got directly involved. We end up with year-round access to E15. I think we just need EPA to do what the president negotiated with uh, Governor Reynolds and, and Senators Ernst and Grassley. And, and deliver this fix in a way that actually brings balance to this. Uh, you mentioned you go back home up to the uh, northwest part of our state here and where your family has farming up there. So you travel besides that just with your job. As you go around the state, you are seeing different impacts from the weather we've dealt with. Oh, yes. Over this past year. <laughs> we, had, we actually had somehow we had flooding and drought both in the same year. And in some areas you're dealing with this early cold. Um, how are we and how much at the end of the day are we going to lose because of what we've dealt with this year? Weather has been such a dominant factor in this growing season and you know we go back to uh, we had flooding in southwest and southeastern Iowa this year but really there there were very few parts of our state that weren't somehow impacted by the wet cold weather this spring. What that did is it, it really delayed harvest about a, or delayed planting a couple of weeks and every measure throughout the year has been delayed a couple of weeks and here we are in harvest now delayed a couple of weeks. What that can mean is loss of yield. Now what I'm hearing anecdotally across the state is that folks are generally uh, pleased with corn yields and, and, and bean yields are, uh, are okay. So all things considered, uh, this has been a challenging year 
and we still have about a quarter of the corn crop that's out there still needing to be harvested here, and it's late in the season. But uh, we, we've we've been okay. It's just been a grind for we, folks. We've been excuse me. We've been getting complaints the last couple of weeks about access to propane yes. to try to dry all this stuff. Right? Yes. Is that being remedied yet? I've seen Senator Grassley talking about this. Senator Ernst watching this as well. How bad is this, and are we catching up? It, it is bad. It's real. Uh, we know that the the impact is that folks uh, have had to slow down or even stop harvest because they haven't had the propane to dry the corn. Maybe what's I think unique this year is that, you know, typically there's some corn that comes out of the field that does not have to be dried. This year, almost every bushel of corn that was hmm. combined in the state needs to be dried. Hey, we also had then uh, a convergence of some issues where we had cold temps that also spiked the demand for residential sure. heating and for livestock heating as well. So we're, uh, we're, we're grinding through it. It's been painful for folks, but we need to get more supply into the state. Uh, the governor's signed a, a couple of waivers that have helped with delivery of propane, and we're looking for some relief at the federal level with the pipelines to get more propane up those pipelines. So I think we're getting, we're getting there, but really what will solve this is getting through harvest. Um, just quickly, for what is not brought in yet, not harvested yet. You mentioned that we, you know we still got some out there. Is it too late for that still to happen? No, no, it's still there's still time. And you know we're uh, earlier this week we were at 77 percent mm -hmm. harvested. Well, you know that's that's still three million acres of, of corn that's out in the field. Right. So it's not too late. The longer the season goes, the more you start to worry about you know things corn falling down or falling off of the stock. Okay. But uh, no, there's still time. Uh, I think there's a few folks that'll be uh, taking a break, coming in and eating Thanksgiving dinner and going back out to the field, unfortunately, but but there's time to get this done. All right, speaking of turkey, if you can hang on, that's a hint for you in a quick six. <laughs> okay. So that's not an insult to you, by the way. <laughs> first, when we come, so we'll have the secretary back here, but first, Deval Patrick makes his first appearance here on The Insiders. Hear how this former governor of Massachusetts makes a case that he is not too late to get into this presidential race and how he gives us a little clue about how he plans a campaign in this state. That July appearance gave us a glimpse of what could happen and now it officially has. Former Iowa Governor Tom Vilsack and First Lady Christie hosted Joe and Jill Biden at the Vilsack's home in July near Waukee. Well, this weekend, the Vilsacks formally endorsed Biden for president. So you can eliminate the Vilsacks from Deval Patrick's wish list. The former Massachusetts governor is only a week or so into his campaign for president after earlier this year declining to get in. I talked to him about this late entrance into a crowded Democratic race for president. Just introducing myself. We're building the team. We will have a presence here. Uh, obviously, I have to be respectful of the uh, of the uh, of the calendar and the system and the and the people. But I want to make sure that the folks of Iowa know uh, that as a candidate and uh, and with their and others blessing uh, as president, I'm not going to ignore them. But if this is a football game, this is a fourth quarter, and you're coming in. Not necessarily. I mean, I understand why you ask because uh, you know there are other candidates and campaigns that have been added for months and months and years, years. in some cases, <laughs> right? And uh, and there are a lot and there are a lot of us. Um, but um, I think from the electorate's point of view, Dave, the folks haven't settled. Uh, and there are lots of indications uh, of that. And, you know, I had a uh, wonderful visit with the, with the Davis, well, excuse me, with the Polk County uh, Democrats yesterday. And a uh, great big room and a bunch of folks came up afterwards. And it was, it was apparent in the questioning because we spent some time really 
in conversation and then in the, in the private conversations that folks were open. Uh, there was a guy who ran a couple years ago. His name was Barack Obama. <laughs> you may have heard of him. Yeah, um, he and I, we spent a lot of time here together. Uh, I know, I remember that. And you've also talked to him, I'm sure, recently about this decision. Mm -hmm. As you well know, he really embraced this concept of, you know, the caucuses are kind of a unique beast, mm -hmm. as you well know, and mm -hmm. you have to organize the heck out of it. Right. To come in this late would make that incredibly difficult mm -hmm. to do. So is your focus to have a small presence here and really go hard in New Hampshire in a more traditional primary setting, or how are you looking at this? Well, you know, I'd want to get into all the um, intimate details of how... But they, you know that matters to people. It matters to you, I know. I think the organizers, it matters <laughs> I, to you. You bet. No, no, that's right. I mean, the, the activists. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, I'm just presuming that your, your viewership is broader than that. I want to be respectful of, uh, of them. You know, there's a lot of focus that we often make as Democrats, I will say, um, on the how and less on the why. Um, and I think the why has to be about, and for me, is about how you have an ambitious agenda and actually accomplish that agenda by bringing other people along instead of pushing them uh, aside because there's no one candidate, there's no one uh, party for that matter that has a corner on all the best ideas. and so. Our experience in Massachusetts when I was governor, frankly, my experience in business in accomplishing big, bold uh, objectives was bringing other people into the process of doing so and yielding uh, not, the, not the ends, but the means. There may be more than one way to, uh, to accomplish that, and I'm looking forward to having a chance to explain that. Uh, to the uh, uh, to the people of Iowa and the people of the United States. Is there an issue that you plan to lead strong with in particular? Well, I share uh, enthusiasm for many of the reforms that other candidates are talking about around uh, around health care or the criminal justice system or immigration. Uh, for example, I think we need ethics uh, reform as, uh, as well, and we're going to roll out a, a reform agenda in the next couple of weeks. But I also think we need an opportunity agenda, as I describe it, which is a, a growth ag uh, agenda, how we create an economy that's growing out to the middle and the marginalized and not just up as it is today to the well-connected. And, uh, and I have some ideas about that and some experience around that. And then finally, um, what I would describe as a democracy agenda, which is about how we fix all of the contortions and tricks and games that have been pl placed into the system from the over-reliance on money, much of it dark, to, uh, uh, to gerrymandering, to the voter suppression and so forth that just make it hard for people to make um, their civic life work. Um, so, um, uh, and, and I will say, as a part of that, I think national service is a conversation we ought to have because we don't know each other in this country anymore. Uh, healthcare might be the most, the issue where we've seen the most intense debate yes. here so far. Yes the Medicare for all crowd and then the reform in a different way crowd, yeah. which way are you going to lean? Well, look, I mean, having uh, implemented uh, a, a, a major health care reform when I was a, uh, a governor of Massachusetts before the ACA uh, and having brought uh, health care with the help of a big, broad team to uh, over 98 percent of our residents, I don't think there's anybody, any other state yet that has reached quite that, uh, that level. There's more than one way to skin a cat. You know, um, I very much am committed, I think as all the Democratic candidates are, to delivering health care to everybody. I, have, I happen to believe that a public option is the way to do that. That public option might well be Medicare. It's a familiar um, program. 
Um, so extending it uh, in that respect might be the simplest way. But I think um, there is a value in continuing to have private insurance. And I don't say that because I have any particular love of, uh, of private insurance. I've dealt with the hassles that, uh, that people frequently complain of. But there is something to be gained from the competitive tension of having uh, a lower cost, very affordable public, publicly funded option that then causes private industry to think, you know, we got to figure out how to compete against that, um, how we think about our own margins and the quality and range of care uh, offered. Uh, that's one advantage because system costs are important. And, uh, and from the perspective of, of Medicare, you know, they may learn some things about um, the ease of sign up or what have you. I don't know what it could be um, from, the, uh, from the private sector that helps to improve the quality of Medicare. So why not have that, um, uh, that competitive and, and potentially creative uh, tension and offer choice uh, to everybody? You mentioned President Obama. When he was running, he chose Joe Biden, made him his vice president, mm -hmm. his, the country's number two, obviously. Mm -hmm. So in light of that decision, why should we not get behind, why should Democrats not get behind Joe Biden? If he was a good number two then, wouldn't he be a good number one now? Well, don't, don't ask me to, to run down any other... Um, we have to candidate. run him down. Well, look, well you I, obviously want to beat the man, he wouldn't be running. I do, um, but you're right, that's fair. Um, he, but he's a friend of mine. You know, I've, I've known Joe Biden since I was nominated by President Clinton to head the Civil Rights Division at DOJ at the Department of Justice, and he was chair of the of the Senate Judiciary Committee at the time, and he had my back then, and he has uh, ever since, and I've tried to have his. Um, I think he's an enormously decent, um, uh, caring person. Um, but at the same time, I think, uh, and this is not about Joe Biden, this is about um, this very, very talented field we have. Um, what, is, what is demanded of our leadership today uh, and going forward is not nostalgia. It's not backward looking. It's not, you know, let's just remove the incumbent and go back to doing what we used to do. There's some big, hard questions that are facing our country and that are facing humankind. And, uh, and they, I, think, I think there's an appetite, not just among Democrats, but among, uh, but among citizens generally, to confront those questions for real, meaning not just kind of tuck them away, and they range from issues of how to deliver health care or have uh, comprehensive immigration reform that's both about our humanitarian values and our, uh, uh, and our and border integrity. Um, and I think there is a solution there, but you have to get, we have to, we have to be willing uh, to have some of those uh, hard, uh, uh, hard conversations and be a bridge builder, and I think having tried, and I think with some success, been a bridge builder in the public, in the private sector, here in the United States and around the, around the world in a host of settings is a, uh, uh, is a kind of servant leadership I can offer. Uh, now, you talked about not going back. Is that a not-so-subtle reminder of Joe Biden from the past? No, no. You who are you talking about you from the have, past? You don't have to read, read between the lines. I'm just saying, look, we have a, uh, it's not going to be enough for us to say as, as Democrats um, that we have a plan for Democrats and that if we have control, we're going to jam it through for Democrats. Now, you know, if we can't get any uh, collaboration, let's move. But um, I think we have to make the case that, uh, and I have tried to, that I am not interested in being president of the Democrats, or the president of the United States. And that means that uh, once you get the job, you're everybody's president. You have to, yes, you, you want to be grateful to Democrats. You want to be... Uh, uh, um, 
respectful of Democrats and you want to be respect respectful of the agenda uh, that I am running on, uh, which is a forward-looking, ambitious uh, agenda. But you also have to, you have to care about everyone everywhere uh, and listen to them and make sure that they feel seen and heard. And that's a really tough thing to say at a time when, you know, we have had a president who, who seems to wake up every day trying to think about how to divide us. There's a new report out from the Wesleyan Media Project, and it shows how much one presidential candidate is spending like no other. Here's what I mean here. That's Tom Steyer on the left. Now, keep in mind, they tracked about $50 million in total ads by the presidential candidates so far this year. Tom Steyer, the billionaire from California, $36.4 million of that total. Now, look at this one. This zeroes in on the most recent spending. So everything since October the 1st. It's a similar story here, Steyer dominating with the overall spending. You can see the other side of things. California Senator Kamala Harris has spent nothing on TV ads right now as she is dealing with money problems. She's had to cut staff in other states and cut pay in some cases for staffers. So you can see the big spender and you can see who is not spending much these days. When we come back, I was agriculture secretary. We'll ask him about a timeline for this trade war, plus how he likes his turkey in the Insider's Quick Six. Time for the Insider's Quick Six. All right, Mr. Secretary, question one. What impact will the trade war have on our agriculture community? by next planting season if it's mm. not resolved. Oh, if it's not resolved, it's it's uh, devastating, but there's reason to be hopeful. We will continue to see victory wins here add up as we move into next next year. All right, question two, this is a percentage I'm looking for. If, an if a perfect year is 100% that we make it through harvest despite weather, at the end of the day, what do you think we're going to be at the end of this year with in light of what we've dealt with? Oh, I, this hard hard to say. This is a challenging year, but we're going to make it. <laughs> Farmers, Farmers have to deal with this kind of uncertainty and weather challenge every single year. So we'll, we will get to the end of harvest. It's just going to take us longer. But like we'll be 90% of normal? What do you think? Oh, uh, yield-wise, yeah, we'll, we'll be 90, something like 90%. Okay. Uh, question three, Wisconsin's having this deal with uh, horseradish shortage because of the cold weather that hit early. Are you a horseradish fan or not? Uh, sure, absolutely. Good with, uh, good with prime rib. Amen. Uh, question four, what is a growing market in our state that people may not realize that you've you've seen? Uh, aquaculture, uh, uh, farmed fish. We have a great opportunity to expand that. Uh, question five, we've got Thanksgiving coming up here. How do you prefer your turkey? Oh, I'll take it any way I can get it. If it's on a plate, that's a good thing. <laughs> a good one, and your prediction. <laughs> My prediction. Uh, I usually don't make you know, predictions that'll move the market, but I think uh, turkey sales are gonna go through the roof next week. No, the prediction is more of a hope. Uh, USMCA will have passed by the time that voters go to the uh, Iowa caucuses. Appreciate it. Safe travels and happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. Same to you. Thanks for being with us. Let's stay connected throughout the week. We'll see you next week.